Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have a great show with a guest that we've had on a number of times. It's J.M. Berger is on the show. So first of all, welcome back to the Loopcast, J.M. Thank you so much for having me back. And I'm really excited to have JM as our guest because surprisingly, even to myself, today's show is our 200th episode. Do not ask me where all this time has flown by that we've done 200 episodes, but um, it's a big surprise to myself, but also it's great to have JM as our guest for the 200th show. Congratulations, and I, I appreciate being the 200th. Ah, thank you, and, and also thank you for being the 200th guest. So today we're going to talk about JM's recent work on the Turner Diaries and white nationalism. He's had a major piece that's come out of the International Center for Terrorism, and or sorry, International Center for Counterterrorism, and that is called the Turner Legacy. And then there is a mini piece that talked about this bigger piece of work in the Atlantic, and um, it's really the major piece of work, the um, Turner Legacy really in-depth on the Turner Diaries, so if you don't know what it is, I really highly recommend you read this piece of work because it gives you a broad sense of the book and a detailed sense, and you can go away saying, hey, I might have not read the Turner Diaries, however, I understand the basis of it and how it has grown in the white nationalism alternate right uh, group and, and why, so I'm very excited to talk about this with J.M., And just for our listeners who might not know who J.M. is, he is an International Center for Counterterrorism Associate Fellow and a fellow with George Washington University's Program on Extremism. He also has done a lot of research and analysis and consulting with a specific focus on extremism and activities in the U.S. and on social media. He's also the co-author of a critically acclaimed book called ISIS, The State of Terror with Jessica Stern. And I highly recommend if you're interested in that topic to read it because it's a great book. And then he has a previous book before that called Jihad Joe, Americans Who Go to War in the Name of Islam. Also a fantastic book on that topic. And he was also previously a non-resident fellow with the Brookings Institution's project on U.S. relations with the Islamic world and an associate fellow with the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. So he has a strong history in this field and great work out there. So I highly recommend checking it out. So after we've got that out of the way, why don't you start off with giving our listeners an overview of what the Turner Diaries are? Okay, so first, thank you for that very, very generous introduction. I, the Turner Diaries has been a subject that you know has really kind of interested me for a long time. Uh, I, I have, over the course of some years, really started to take an interest in how uh, fiction is is used to promote extremism, and, and particularly powerful tool in that arsenal is dystopian fiction. So, 
uh, a lot of this interest started with the Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries is a book that was written in, uh, across the space of a couple of years in the 1970s, and it is a dystopian novel that depicts a future white nationalist revolution. So it's presented as the diaries of a guy named Earl Turner, who is chronicling his role in this revolution as it goes. And, and the book is simultaneously sort of carrying you through all these social developments and trying to present, uh, you know, methods that you can use yourself to promote the white nationalist revolution, should you be so inclined. And since the, the book was originally published in a newsletter that was put out by the National Alliance, which is a, a neo-Nazi group, uh, most of the readers of the book were so inclined. So the book's been really, you know, it's a piece of white nationalist propaganda in the, in the English language. Uh, it, it's possibly the most influential influential book in the, in that realm. Uh, it has inspired directly inspired violence. And then uh, there have been other attacks and, and acts of violence that were carried out by people who read the book or documented to have read the book. Um, you know, I was able to, to sort of document at least 200 murders that, that were related to the book, including most infamously, uh, the Oklahoma city bombing, which accounts for 168 of those. Uh, and you know, that number is probably low. There are probably other cases that just never rose to the media, uh, attention threshold. Um, and then there are other cases, many other cases, attacks and criminal activities that were inspired by the book, sometimes following the blueprint that's laid out in the book fairly closely, uh, that didn't involve, uh, fatalities. And so there's, you know, the, the influence goes even wider than that. And then finally, you know, it, it sort of influenced the direction of the movement, uh, white nationalist movement in the United States in, in, in its, how its ideology has evolved. Why don't you tell us the importance of the author of this book as well? Because he has a strong attachment to the neo-Nazi movement and the National Alliance. Yeah, so William Pierce is, is the guy who wrote the book. And he was you know, uh, a physicist who, uh, grew up, you know, reading science fiction and kind of pulp novels. And, uh, you can kind of see that influence in the book that he produced. He came of age and, and was graduating college during the civil rights movement was coming up and he had a very negative reaction to that. He, uh, he became, you know, a dedicated, uh, ideological racist first associating with the American Nazi party. And then later, forming the National Alliance, which was, you know, a split that was predicated partly by the death of uh, the original founder of, of the American Nazi Party, George Lincoln Rockwell, but also because uh, Pierce had a sort of understanding that when you go out and you parade around wearing swastikas uh, in, you know, Nazi uniforms and goose-stepping, that you're, you're not necessarily going to attract the best quality of person. So he was interested in recasting white nationalism in a, a more inclusive way that would get more white people involved with it without feeling like they were getting involved in something crazy. So with what you just mentioned, you have this dystopian fiction genre. How does that resonate to the audience of the book with these messages of white nationalism and anti-minorities and so forth? Describe how the dystopian genre helps this book well uh, my my broad interest right now is really in how dystopian genre 
uh, serves as a carrier for radical politics. So, you know, there's, there's, it's a relatively young genre. It's only been around for a couple hundred years. And during that time, it's really been very closely associated with, with a variety of radical, radical political views. And in the case of the Turner Diaries and in the case of a lot of these books, uh, a dystopian format where you're talking about a society that has gone, you know, irrevocably wrong, that has been corrupted to its core, it can serve as, as sort of an apocalyptic text for a group that's not necessarily re- having religious orientation. It, it gives you cosmic stakes about the struggle that you're, you're hearing about as you, as you read about this world where everything has gone wrong. And one thing that, you know, I have come to understand as I've started working on this uh, sort of longer term uh, interest and study of how dystopian fiction functions in these radical movements is that uh, dystopia is very often about race, sometimes very explicitly about race. And, and, you know, the paper, the Turner legacy is really about tracing the books that shaped the Turner Diaries because the Turner Diaries is, is, well known because of its role in the Oklahoma City bombing, but it's also uh, not a unique artifact. So, you know, people talk about it, but it's just sort of like a throwaway couple of paragraphs here and there. They talk about it as a, something that sort of exists in a vacuum. And, you know, the reality is that it, it came out of this very long line of dystopian racist novels. And, and actually the first the first modern dystopian novel that I was able to identify and you know, a lot of the stuff is ephemeral, so I can't, I'm not claiming that it's the absolute first ever written, but the first one that really fits that kind of dystopian model that we now understand when we look at a movie like the hunger games or blade runner or something, uh, was a racist book. It was an anti-abolitionist book, uh, called a, a journey in the city of amalgamation. And it was, uh, about a a glimpse into a future 20th century future in which uh everybody is forced to miscegenate so you have all you know everybody is like required by law to have children with people of other races and it's an incredibly vile book uh but it's really you know it was one of the very first dystopian novels and then in pretty close succession after that as the as the civil war was approaching what we saw is that there were a number of other uh you know, really racially focused dystopian novels that came out that were, they were all describing some version of a nightmare future in which, uh, the civil war was, was being forecast or a nightmare future in which diversity had taken over and, and, you know, white people had lost their, their privilege. And so, you know, it's, it's really something that I've really become very sensitized to in, in the broad dystopian genre now is that, is that race is some, is a huge factor in books, even when they're not overtly about race. And as you mentioned, certain dystopian stories, such as the hunger games, maze runner, etc., um, we're seeing a lot of that in current literature. What do you think the popularity of dystopian fiction says about our society today and potentially the strong alternate right white nationalism neo-nazi surge that we've been seeing i think it's a probably too broad to say that you know these these things are are deeply linked but you know the surge in 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 this kind of alt-right movement and white nationalist movement 
in a very general way reflects a, a sort of dystopian vision. So, you know, when we see a lot of I, the word dystopian has been appearing a lot of news coverage lately, uh, you know, and and I think that it's because to when you're selling an extremist movement, that dystopian worldview helps you sell it. So if you want people to become committed, ideological racists, uh, you know, as opposed to just being, you know, like somebody's racist uncle, uh, it's really you, you need to make the case that this is a cosmic struggle that has existential qualities. And so dystopian fiction helps you do that. I think that, you know, in terms of how the sort of the broad popularity of the genre, I think what's really kind of interesting in, in the last 10 years is that uh, it, the, the surge in young adult dystopia. So the original young adult dystopia is uh, Logan's Run, which goes back to the 70s. But the the popularity of the genre really is is something that's that's relatively recent and is you know about the last 10 years. And these works are are really kind of fascinating to me because they present the dystopian scenario this this idea that you know society is going cosmically wrong, uh, but they don't necessarily. Um, have an ideology attached to them. So prior to, you know, 2000 or so, a lot of dystopian fiction had, you know, was almost always very explicit political point of view that the book was trying to advance. Because if you're writing about a society that's gone bad, you know, you part of why you're doing that is you want to write about why it went bad. So, you know, dystopian fiction in general is, is extremely political and, what you see in in kind of you know starting with books like The Giver and and The Hunger Games and uh, the you know the Divergent series is that the the politics are are either you know incredibly simplified or completely absent. So you're getting that dystopian sense of urgency and fear, but you're not filling that void with a a political statement, you know, or a clear political statement. And so you know I think that that you know, is is a kind of fascinating and, and sort of, you know, I wonder what that does to kids. <laughs> you got, you know, if you're 13, 12, 13, 14, reading a book like this, I mean, I, you, you kind of wonder if, uh, what, what kind of mindset that helps promote in a, in a developing mind. And it's interesting you brought that up. I actually had a conversation with someone about that and kind of reflecting on the books I read when I was a young adult or preteen and, they had nowhere near the amount of violence or apocalyptic settings that you see in a lot of these young adult novels now. And it, it really does make you wonder what this generation of young people, why it's so attractive, what it says about that form of our society, that aspect of our society. So it is a big question and not just your mind and my mind and, and other people that we've talked about this. But I well, you can yep, go you ahead. can sort of point at uh, you know the emergence of the genre parallels with with two major changes in society and you know and rapid change in a society is something that you can sort of point to as as creating a climate where dystopian fiction would be popular. So you know the rise the the birth of this genre sort of coincided with abolition of slavery which is why there's so much racial stuff in the, in the history of it. And also the industrial revolution. So a lot of dystopia, you know, I, I think of this as being, you know, I, I call it paleo dystopia, meaning sort of like the racial super radical kind of right wing 
piece of it. And then you have techno dystopia, which is about how technology is going to change our lives for the worse. And, you know, those, those two strains that the industrial revolution and the abolition of slavery really created a society in which there were just huge dramatic changes happening very quickly. And that in dystopian fiction is a sort of natural response to fears about, about changes in a society. When you look at your society and you say, Oh my God, all this stuff is going on. What does it mean for the future? And so, you know, speculative fiction is a way to sort of try to answer that question. So getting back to your International Center for Counterterrorism or ICCT paper, which is the Turner Legacy, you describe elements within it that are designed to maximize its impact on readers. And you lay out, um, let's see, one, two, three, four, four different elements call to action, emphasis on authenticity, the objective of terrorism, and practical guidance. I was wondering if we could look at this a bit, because this is very interesting, the messaging within this novel. Yeah, so the Turner Diaries is a, you know, it reads as a very crudely written book, and it's not extremely well written. And I think that, you know, it's easy to think that that means it's unsophisticated. Uh, as a piece of propaganda, it's pretty sophisticated. Uh, and it, it has a very consistent uh, message that it's trying to put out, which is that, you know, uh, violence is necessary to reverse this this trend that is tied to racial fear, and here's how you need to do it. So the call to action is something that is just uh, incredibly uh, persistent throughout the book. When when the, the narrator of the book turns to talking about politics, he's not trying to convince you to be a racist, right? So the book assumes that if you're reading the you're reading this, you're already a racist. We're not going to try and sell you on racism. What we're going to try and do is sell you you, the racist reader, on the idea that you have to do something now. And so a lot of the book is is really sort of uh, you know, it's set off in the not too distant future, as dystopian fiction usually is, and it it's looking back and saying, oh, if only people had acted sooner, and only you know, boy, I hate the people who just sit at home and and talk a good game and don't do anything. So the call to action is is a is a huge part of the book and and probably responsible for why it's been connected to the violence so often. Um, the emphasis on authenticity is something that comes as a particular piece of, of this, uh, as, a, as a piece of literature. Um, the Turner Diaries is obviously presented as diaries. It's, it's somebody writing his experience. And, and actually, the sort of the crude writing style kind of helps it in that way because it kind of reads like it's some white nationalist diary and, and not like a, you know, a soaring work of literature. So it feels more authentic of that and it, and it borrows that format one, one thing that really you know in, in spurring me kind of to sit down and write this is that there are the preceding books uh really use this format very well so there there are books going all the way back to the pre-civil war era that use this what we call the ep epistolary format which is letters found documents like we, we found these letters and and you know here's here's what happened and you know there's a little forward and an afterward that sort of is like a historian saying oh this is this document is like so historically important so so it gives it a sense of realism that that it would not otherwise have based on its you know pretty far-fetched plot um then it talks about terrorism it talks about not just 
the practical piece of terrorism, which is, is, is a big part of the book. So there's like, you know, here's how we built the bomb and here's how we stored our guns and here's how we carried out these attacks to try and sort of present a, a blueprint that you can follow. That's the, the practical guidance part. And then it also has discusses why you do these things. So and, and that's where, you know, you can see that the book is particularly astute on this question. It's like uh, it talks about the propaganda of the deed. Uh, it talks about, you know, the psychological impacts of attacks. It talks about provoking the government to overreact to the attacks and then alienating more people who then become associated with the movement. And it talks about the fact that, you know, for all the ideology of these attacks, it's really like they, they don't manage to mobilize uh, their supporters until people start to feel uncomfortable, until it starts to touch them at home. They get, you know, there's damage to the economy and people get hungry or, you know, there's there's crackdowns that affect them in their neighborhoods. So you mentioned that the Turner Diaries have inspired a lot of acts of violence, one of them being very significant, the Oklahoma City bombings and Timothy McVeigh. So I was wondering how we can find these connections with this book and how you've put together the dots. So the Oklahoma City bombing is, is kind of the easy case on this because Timothy McVeigh was really obsessed with the book. So any investigation into McVeigh's life found this book everywhere. He gave it to his friends. He sold it at gun shows. He talked about it constantly. Uh, and and the bomb that he built was very similar to the bomb that was actually used in the Oklahoma City bombing. So, the, you know, if you read the Turner Diaries, uh, you, you probably can't build a, a bomb effectively from the description that's in the book, but it's a pretty good description that would lead you to other information. You would you could model your bomb on that because there's enough detail in there. So, uh, you know, the bomb that McVeigh built was extremely similar to the bomb that was used to bomb FBI headquarters in, in, the, in the novel. And so, you know, McVeigh was kind of the easy case. And obviously it's sort of responsible for some of the notoriety of the book and the reason that people like respond to it when they see it in, uh, you know, that that somebody who carried out a crime has been reading it. But the book really, you know, because of this how to thing and because it's so focused on the call to action, it, it, it really it inspired a lot of violence before and after the Oklahoma city bombing. So the, the first, you know, real case where we saw somebody acting out in, in response to what they'd read was a group called the order, uh, in the 1980s. And the order is also the name of the white supremacist secret cabal that's running the revolution in the Turner diary. So they took this group of people led by a guy named Bob Matthews, uh, read this book and they, they took their template out of it. They took the name of their cell out of that book and used it in real life. They, they, when somebody, uh, signed up with their group, which was, you know, just a handful of people, but they were very active and very violent. They committed a lot of armed robberies. Um, you know, and, and they would give the book to somebody and say, read this book. This is what we're doing. So, I mean, it, you know, there's, there's another case, even more so than Oklahoma city, really, where you can say this was obviously directly inspired, <laughs> by the Turner Diaries. Uh, there was a similar uh, group acting out on that template in Australia who uh, I didn't get into the paper, actually. They hadn't killed anybody, and so I didn't become aware of them until after the paper was published, and somebody uh, mentioned it to me. And, you know, they also, you know, really just 
like took the stuff that was in the book and just he said you know this is what we're doing this is our template um you know there was a cell called the national socialist underground in germany that that also used the book in the same way and they were active for almost 10 years and and were involved in quite a bit of violence and then what we've also seen in after the oklahoma city bombing uh the organizational strength of, of white nationalism really declined after the Oklahoma city bombing. So there had been a long movement, um, starting really with the order after the order was broken up. Uh, one of one part of what the order did was they carried out armed robberies and then distributed the proceeds to other famous white nationalists. And a lot of those leaders of the white nationalist movement were charged in a sedition trial, uh, you know, in, in the, late 1980s and that after that they all sort of said well you know we don't want to go to jail so here's here's our new philosophy which is leaderless resistance (laughs) you know and people should just like go out there and do their own thing and carry this out and not wait for instructions from from a leader or central command so when that shift started to happen and, and and it really started to pick up after the Oklahoma city bombing what we found was that that the Turner Diaries was also, you know, seemed to be a key inspiration for people to just carry out their own. You know, it was like full of this call to action. It was full of this very, you know, dark and 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 disgusting kind of racial fear mongering, and it, it provoked people to just act out on their own. So there was a case in in Texas in 1998 where you know uh, three white men uh, kidnapped a black man and chained him to the back of a truck and dragged him down the road until he was dead. And they said, you know, in the course of this, uh, in talking to police, they said, Oh, well, we're, we're starting the Turner diaries, you know, we're starting this white nationalist revolution. So, uh, a number of other people, not just, you know, what, what we find there's sort of like two kinds of cases, right? So there's one where, you know, somebody gets arrested and then when you go back and look at their background, uh, you know, you find they have the Turner Diaries on their shelf. And that is suggestive, but not always completely indicative, right? You know, you can't necessarily say that the book inspired it. But in a lot of these cases, when they are arrested, they will talk about it. So there's David Copeland, who's a UK uh, resident who who targeted blacks and gays with shrapnel bombs and and you know, killed three people, injured 140 people in, in multiple bombings. And when he was arrested, he's, he said, you know, if you've read the Turner diaries, it's like, that says all in the Turner diaries. And, you know, I'm trying to start a race war just like in the Turner diaries. So some of these cases that I document in, in the paper are, you know, just cases where it was clear that the person had read the book, but in many of these cases, uh, there's really something that points to the book's inspiration as being more important. Either the the words of the person who was arrested or when you go back and they interview the families, the families say, well, you know, after he read this book, he seemed to change. You know, this book seemed to really make a difference. And in one of the cases you just mentioned, you mentioned that the book was on their bookshelf, which made me wonder how available... Are copies of this book, are they still being circulated and published? Are they hard copies? Is it something you download off the internet, similar to some of the other terrorist propaganda we see? Like, How do you physically get a hold of this document? 
Yeah, it's all of the above now. You can buy it on Amazon.com. Uh, you know, uh, you can you can download it for free off the internet. Um, it circulates in a lot of different ways, and a lot of these cases are. Uh, I mean, there have been cases going all the way up to 2015 and 2016. So it's not like you know the book has stopped being relevant. But a lot of the cases that, you know, because the books have been around so long, these cases are spread out over a lot of years. And so, uh, you know, half of half of the cases I documented are really kind of pre-Internet. Um, and really what we kind of see is that uh, in the post-Internet era, we see more of these kind of lone wolf attacks inspired by it. Um, so th- these are people who are downloading it who more often have it on their computer than have it on the on the bookshelf. So... Going back to your your paper and your study, you get into some of the plots, like the deeper aspects of the plots, and there are certain things that when you read, you can actually see things going on in today's day and age that have similar aspects to them. And one of the interesting ones that I found was this idea of um, the new, I guess you could call it state, but the as they put it in the book, or as you put it in your um, article, you had, instead of a government, you had a system that was more of minorities versus whites, and whites became the minority, and so there's all this um, conflict with that, but that this this new order of, um, I guess you could call it a state, like the minority order, was trying to confiscate guns of the minority uh, whites and so disarming them taking away their power today we hear a lot of that debate around gun laws and um, registering guns and so forth and so it just kind of made me think like wow this is this is very reflective of today's day and age of some of the um, you know pro-gun strong right uh, sector of americans so what are your thoughts on this well, the the gun piece of it is is probably partly responsible for its how how long this has endured. I mean, the book was often marketed. In fact, Timothy McVeigh said that you know when he first saw it, it was in reference to they're coming to take your guns. So they would market it saying you know it's a book about the future where they're going to come and take your guns. And you know, I would say it's probably too uh, precious to say that Turner is responsible for that kind of paranoia about guns, but it certainly is symbiotic with sort of right-wing extremist paranoia about guns. So what I think Turner has really accomplished is, is it's taken the, the idea of gun confiscation, which, I mean, you know, anybody who lives in America, I think, realizes that the idea that, you know, the public is going to be disarmed by the government is is unlikely to the point of, of fantasy. Um, but that myth of gun confiscation has become a, a, a just a central theme that, that shows up in this. And so, you know, in, in this paper, I looked at a lot of the predecessors to the Turner Diaries. What I didn't have time and space to do is to look at some of the successors to the Turner Diaries. So there have been a lot of books that were inspired by the Turner Diaries that have been written by both, but not just, uh, you know, white nationalist extremists, but also like patriot movement, anti-government kind of extremists. And, you know, the thing that really is is become sort of a mythological point that's enshrined in all of this stuff is this idea of, of gun confiscation, that they will come and take your guns and that will be the thing that that turns, you know, that causes everybody to rise up 
so so that mythology around gun confiscation is is become you know broader and broader and and it fuels a lot of uh activity both in the in the extremist movements but also you know spilling over into into sort of the the right wing of mainstream politics and another theme you hear or actually two other themes is this idea of the non-white minority oppressing the white minority and once again there's similar tones when especially looking at our elections today and certain candidates um the (laughs) idea of you know foreigners or um immigrants taking away jobs and government benefits and so on and and there's a lot of anger in certain groups about that like once again there's similar undertones with the book's plot and and sort of what's going on in today's day and age um also this idea that you hear a lot from um, the Republican side or the very conservative Republican side is the best way of putting it, that our system here, and when I say system, it's the government, that it's become too big. And so we need to scale it down and take back our country and our rights. And so many undertones that I feel like can correspond with what's going on in the Turner Diaries. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that certainly what we've seen uh you know over over the course of time since this book was written so when the turner diaries was written uh there was you know a fairly robust kind of organizational white nationalist movement in the united states and in the wake of the Oklahoma city bombing. And after the sort of shift in focus to leaderless resistance, what it became was more of a, a movement that was like, you know, lurking underneath the surface. And, you know, and one factor in this was also the, uh, you know, the, there was a, a key court case in the nineties where the Southern poverty law center sued the area nations and essentially bankrupted them. So the organizational piece of this, like that we're all like in a particular club with particular beliefs and we're all going to get together at an armed compound and get ready was falling apart. And, and a lot of, you know, at the same time you had, I think a social, development that was really very pro-diversity. It was all, you know, just growing diversity in, in media and, in, in, you know, uh, in society in general. And, and ultimately what happened is, is that, you know, by the time you get to the really to the end of the 1990s and the early 2000s, that, that white nationalism had been hugely stigmatized and was really in a, a state of decline. And what we have seen recently is that you know, they're making a comeback and they're trying to make that comeback in a political context and not necessarily in a, in an organized extremist context, although that exists too. Um, so, you know, for the, the companion piece to the paper, I wrote for the Atlantic about how Turner helped fuel the alt-right, which is so, you know, alt-right sort of sits on the line in between mainstream politics and, and, and extremist politics. Uh, it's a, you know, loosely defined kind of group of people who have very antisocial, retrograde antisocial values. So they're misogynist and racist and, you know, homophobic and whatever. And I think you can really kind of trace that back to something that started in the Turner Diaries. One thing that the Turner Diaries did based on William Pierce's beliefs, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, he didn't, he thought that this, you know, ostentatious display of swastikas and, and goose stepping and, and dressing up in robes and whatever that white nationalism had been associated with was, was unproductive. He wanted to get 
people who were not crazy <laughs> involved in the movement, to put it, you know, as simply as possible. And that's basically how he said it. He's like, you know, these are not quality. These are not quality people. You know, you go parading around in, in bed sheets, you're not going to get quality people into the movement. So he, uh, in the book, there is a reference to the fact that an ideology exists that, that underlies what, what these white nationalist revolutionaries are doing, but it never says what it is. There's a, there's a scene in the, in the Turner diaries where Earl Turner is brought in and, and given a secret book of ideology to read. And he reads it and he's like, wow, everything makes sense to me now. This is all I understand, but it never says what it is. So one reason the book has been able to endure for a long time is that whatever your particular white nationalist ideology or motivation is, you can just bring it to the, to the book and the book's not going to contradict that. So that made it much, gave it a much wider audience than it would have if it had been outlined a Nazi ideology or a Christian identity ideology. And it also set the stage for an increasingly generic approach to white nationalism. So one of the people who was involved in the order, the, the real life order that was inspired by the Turner diaries was a guy named David Lane. And, and after he was arrested and went to prison, he continued to write about, you know, white nationalism, wrote a lot of ideological and, and propaganda kind of pieces and, and became very influential. And one of the things that he did was he articulated this, like he wrote a three page document that was called the white genocide manifesto. And it, it identified that sort of stripped away everything else and said that the only thing that's going on that we really need to care about is that white people are being bred out of existence by race mixing and white people will be extinct if we don't do anything about it. It's a genocide against white people. And so that encapsulation, that super stripped down encapsulation became incredibly popular and and David Lane's articulation of, of their cause became incredibly popular. And later white nationalists continued to kind of strip this down to make it more and more, you know, generic and more and more uh, something that you could target out to other people. So, you know, you had the emergence, there was a guy named Bob Whitaker who took the white genocide manifesto, three-page manifesto and turned it into two sentences, basically. And then went on online forums first, uh, message boards, and then later on on Twitter and Facebook and and posted this all over and saying, you know, white genocide. Two words, white genocide and, uh, you know, one phrase that says anti-racist is code for anti-white. And and that's like that's like his ideology (laughs) that they're trying to sell. They're not trying to sell anything more complicated than that. And then, you know, from that, you have the emergence of, of, you know, the official all right. You have the emergence of uh, Richard B. Spencer and his alternative right website where you take, you know, really ultimately uh, when you look at the all right and you try and distill if there's like an ideology behind it, really the ideology is we're racist. (laughs) <laughs> and that's it so we're racist and we like hanging out with other racists and we're misogynists and we like hanging out with other misogynists and so you know so the all right can can gather more steam and get more people behind it than christian identity where you have to subscribe to a really complicated ideology that's like derived from the bible and and you know it's is is uh hard to hard to wrap your head around and, and sounds like you're a lunatic you don't have to you know you can just say well i'm racist and i'm with these guys so i think that you know the the sort of rising prominence of of these groups is it's fueled by a lot of complicated social stuff but 
you know, one of the factors that has, has sort of led to this uh, intrusion of white nationalism into our mainstream politics is the fact that it has been really decontextualized to the point that it's really just about uh, we're going to be organized racists instead of individual racists. I mean, within that group, obviously, there are people who have ideological beliefs, who are neo-Nazis or who are Christian identity or, or identitarians or one of the many different you know, strains of white nationalism, but they're increasingly coming together around these very broad principles where they don't have to, uh, don't have to necessarily subscribe to any one point of view. And and it makes, it means they can go to a wider audience. It's very interesting. The idea of simplifying an ideology or a, a thought basis and making it so simple that it's accessible to anyone that might have it any tendencies to be on that similar thought path or ideal path and whether they're strong with a very strong ideology or maybe just one idea and it just opens it up to the masses. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's some interesting follow-on work to do in in this space, you know, research that I would like to look at in the future, including um, how do these ideologies arise in the first place? So, you know, prior to the rise of the abolitionist movement, you know, I mean, white nationalism wasn't an ideology. It was just the way things were. This is the United States, and of course, white people are in charge. And you know, there's not very much, not very great pains taken to to create a justification, complicated justification for that. You know, uh, it was based on the assumptions of society. And then what you see, and you can sort of see this play out uh, parallel to these these history of these dystopian books, is that when when the idea of white supremacy is challenged, then first people came up with political arguments for it. Uh, when the political arguments failed, then they came up with these increasingly convoluted ideological arguments. So I think there's, you know, probably an interesting question about why ideologies form, you know, uh, ideologies are, are something that emerge to justify a belief that you already have. They don't necessarily create that belief out of the whole cloth. Then, you know, if somebody joins the movement later and adopts the ideology, obviously it's shaping them. But where do the ideologies come from in the first place? Uh, why do they develop in the way that they do? And, uh, you know, the other piece of this I think is interesting is you can sort of look at tra- trajectories in other extremist movements. So if you look at uh, ISIS, for instance, ISIS's ideology is very complicated, but what they present to their recruits is a very stripped down vision that's you know heavily apocalyptic and and you know if you are the kind of person who's inclined to seek a more complicated justification such as if you're trying to recruit somebody out of al-qaeda into isis that ideological piece is available but for a lot of the recruits that that join isis and a lot of the reason that we're so you know dealing with such a large-scale problem with foreign fighters and and lone wolf terrorists is that the ideology is 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 kind of optional? I mean, you can just subscribe for the the identity markers and the apocalyptic fear, and you don't necessarily have to understand the complexities. So, to conclude the talk, as you know, because you've been on the Loopcast a number of times, we like to give our guests a moment to touch on something that might not have been touched on, or a final thought when time is permitting. So, I will hand the floor over to you. 
Thank you. Uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about in this space. And uh, if there's anything we didn't really get into in a in a sort of deep way in the, in this talk is the sort of literary predecessors of of the book. So, I actually, you know, when I was in college, I majored in English literature, which was uh, came up in the during the editing of the paper. It was pointed out that I was being more of an English literature student than an extremism writer and so i had to make ed- make changes to, based on that but uh you know to me and i think to maybe many people who aren't heavily invested in this subject or have a huge background in it what was really fascinating is just the the fact that there, you you can really kind of draw a straight line from you know that sit journey in the city of amalgamation back in the uh, 1830s to the Turner Diaries, and you can sort of say, "Look, this is a genre that evolved, and there were like multiple versions of this book, and each one was slightly different and refined the formula a little more." And it, it goes all the way up to a book. There was a Patriot Movement book published in the late '50s called "The John Franklin Letters," that was a direct inspiration for for the Turner Diaries, and is really kind of interesting in its own right and inspired its own imitators. So the other thing that I thought was really interesting sort of potential inspiration for the Turner Diaries is this black nationalist novel called The Spook Who Sat by the Door. And it was written in the 60s. It's It's got a very similar plot line to Turner. It outlines how to go through an insurgency in the same way. And it was... Uh, it rose to prominence around the time that William Pierce was writing the Turner Diaries because uh, it was adapted into a movie in, in 73, 74 and uh, was pulled out of theaters because of the violence, because, you know, allegedly because the FBI asked to have it pulled because they were afraid it was going to inspire a black nationalist uprising. So, you know, that, you know, to me, it's just this sort of this progression of the idea over the course of the years is is really kind of fascinating. And eventually, you know, I'd like to talk about sort of what's happened with this genre after after the Turner Diaries, because, you know, there have been hundreds of books inspired by the Turner Diaries that, that I just didn't have time to talk about. And because they're not those books are not as influential and inspiring violence as the Turner Diaries has been. So it's, it was sort of less of a priority. But I think, you know, I think just this this progression of, of novels is really kind of a fascinating, fascinating little side trip through history. So. Well, it sounds like you have a, a potential second project in the works with that, and, and I look forward to anything that you do produce on that, because I feel like even things that might not have gotten as much attention, say like the Turner Diaries, um, every aspect that is around that, there's connections, like they all fit together into a puzzle, a little pieces, and you put them together, and it, it shows you a greater picture and connections and so forth, so... I look forward to that. Um, Thank you. So yes, keep keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, and just for our listeners, we will definitely post um, JM's piece called The Turner Legacies and also the piece on the Atlantic so you can read them if you've not before and, you know, weigh in on the conversation. But just... If I can just, uh, yeah. plug, my, plug my blog also. Uh, yes. Worldgonewrong.net uh, is, is a uh, place where I'm writing about dystopian fiction and radical politics and also has several uh, sort of director's cut version stuff that got left out of the paper but I think is interesting and relevant to the Turner Diaries piece. So Fantastic. So there's extra reading on this topic that that's not out there in the mainstream. So yes, check out the blog. But just thank you so much for coming on the show, Jam. It's always a pleasure and, you know, 
celebrating the 200th episode and celebrating this great piece of work that you've done. Thank you so much, and I'm glad to be here for this momentous occasion.